The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? A lot of people may want to attempt suicide because they feel like the symptoms are never going to end. It's never going to get better. And it's a huge reason I really focus on trauma. And people may be like, well, I've never experienced trauma. Trauma is stress when your survival brain perceives you to be powerless, helpless, or lacking control. That's what trauma is. It's just stress with those three factors to it. And so you may go through something traumatic. And like, I always imagine like you have a cup. We all have different cup sizes based on what we went through as children, what our parents went through. And when these things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, whatever it looks like for your trauma gets put into your cup, If you are not recovering after that traumatic experience, your cup is gonna get fuller and fuller until it overflows. And then you have the symptoms. And so for somebody who is struggling with suicidal thoughts, I would wanna help regulate their nervous system. I would wanna help try to empty that cup a little bit for them because that's where the healing takes place. People don't associate past traumas from their childhood as their current symptoms, but the reality is, is it has everything to do with it. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Tara Bixby. Tara is a therapist, an activist, an anxiety coach, and an everyday girl who's on a mission to change the mental health narrative. I happened to just stumble upon her podcast, Courageously You, and followed her on Instagram and realized that we were so in alignment on how we view the mental health problem in America and the solutions that we would like to see being implemented in order to support everyone who is on their mental health journey or who needs mental health support. In this week's episode, we are sticking with mental health because as you guys know from last week's episode, it is Suicide Survivors Month. And I just think it's so important to lift the veil and to drop the shame around dealing with mental health struggles. And as someone who personally has been suicidally depressed on multiple occasions, I wish in those moments that I would have had a podcast like today's to listen to. We are diving into the prevalence of suicide in the United States and why we need to normalize mental health challenges. We're talking about how everyone is susceptible to mental health issues, the impact of the nervous system on our mental health, and why it's important to move away from identifying as your mental health diagnosis. That one was a huge, huge shocker for me. Her explanation of that was just brilliant. And of course, the first steps that you should take if you're struggling with severe depression and suicidality. She gives so many tools in this episode, and I know that you guys are going to benefit from it, whether you're dealing with mental health issues yourself or you know someone who is struggling, this is the episode for you. So with that, here is this week's episode with Tara Bixby. 
Tara, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am a really big fan of your social media posts. I think that we have a very similar outlook on mental health. And so I'm excited to sit down and talk with you today. Can you give our listeners a little brief background into who you are and what brought you into the field of mental health? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. My field was definitely not linear. I started out as a licensed cosmetologist and then I did that for a while and went to school, moved to California for a boy, ended up doing 911 dispatching, went back to finish my schooling, moved back to Idaho, worked at Costco. So like there's nothing linear about my journey here, but I just feel that random little doors have presented themselves for me and I've kind of just stepped in them and it's gotten me to where I am today. Mm. How long have you been working as a therapist? I have been licensed since 2018, but I was working in the mental health field since 2015. I was working as a psychiatric technician in an acute mental health unit inside a maximum security prison. Mm. Wow. I'm so grateful as someone who is a ex-con, um, <laughs> twice convicted felon, we need you. We need more of that. I didn't have access to that when I was at the Linwood Correctional Facility. And I really, I absolutely needed that support. So I am so grateful for your work and your time spent there. You know, in this episode, I really wanted to talk about surviving suicide and about why mental health conditions have gotten so bad and why so many people are struggling silently. I was pulling up statistics from the CDC website and I knew the numbers were high. My background is primarily in um, addiction counseling. And so I focus heavily on looking at overdose rates, right? But when I pulled up the statistics for suicide, it just really spoke volumes to the mental health crisis that we are experiencing in America and in the Western world. The statistics said that in 2019, mind you guys, that the statistics are always going to be a couple of years behind. I'm sure that they're even higher after the pandemic, but we just can't collect data that quickly. In 2019, 12 million Americans thought about committing suicide. 3.5 million Americans planned a suicide attempt. 1.4 million attempted and nearly 50,000 people completed a suicide attempt. It is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, we need to start talking and normalizing our mental health problems. It doesn't discriminate either. That's the other part of this that's so interesting is that it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status or your gender or race. Suicide affects everyone. And it's interesting because I saw that meme go around when it was Suicide Prevention Month. And it showed all of the celebrities that seemed so happy that ended up taking their lives. And it just really, I think, spoke volumes to just who we are as a society. We pretend that everything is okay. And you would have no idea that someone 
is on the brink of attempting suicide. And then the next day they could end their life. I personally have dealt with bouts of suicidal depression in my sobriety and my grandfather took his life two years ago in January and nobody had any indication that he was going to do that. So I think my first question for you would be, what do you think is the cause of why mental health conditions are as bad as they are and and why it's so rampant here in the Western world? I think we are a society of dysregulated mind-body systems because I think we have a totally wrong narrative about mental health. People think mental health, mental illness is due to a chemical imbalance. And the reality is there's no research to support that hypothesis. And so there's a massive stigma around it because people think it's like the asylum days. But the reality is, is your symptoms are a presentation of a dysregulated mind-body system. And what leads to dysregulation is stress, chronic stress. And I mean, if you just look on the past year of COVID, like look at all the stress we've been under. You've had people losing jobs, isolation, fear. Even if you aren't exposed to COVID, you have the fear of what if I get COVID? What if my family member gets it? We've got burnout rates. There's just so many factors that are essentially filling up our cup. And when our cup gets too full, it overflows and then we become dysregulated. And that is where mental health is presenting. Yeah. And so when you see in your practice, somebody who comes in, who is showing signs of depression or anxiety and they feel hopeless and they feel like, you know, there's, there's no way out. I think that's so interesting to that piece of um, isolation I think so many of us feel isolated in these feelings, but it's so common to Mm -hmm. feel this anxiousness, this depression, this feeling of overwhelm, feeling of hopelessness. I think it's far more common than we know about just because not enough people are okay with saying that out loud. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a huge reason I started Courageously You is because I was in grad school and I was struggling. Here I am going to school to be a clinician. I was working a full-time job in the prison. I had a family. I was planning a wedding and I was absolutely tanking. And I felt so alone in my struggle. And I would try to put it out on social, but then I'd feel ashamed that I was sharing it with the world because I felt I had to be strong. I felt I had to navigate all this and not crumble under it. And then one day I was just like, you know what? Like everybody is struggling with this. It's not just me. And I took it upon myself to try to create a conversation around that because nobody is immune to struggling with their mental health. I don't care who you are. If you are above ground and you have a beating heart, you can have a decline in your mental health. Yeah. I like that in the podcast, in the very first episode, you talk about normalizing healers, therapists, counselors, whoever it might be, and their own journey with mental health. I think that a lot of people look towards me or towards whoever they might idolize um, when it comes to overall healing and mental health and go, oh, they're perfect. They clearly have it all together. And that couldn't be further from the truth. We're 
all mm-hmm. trying to navigate our mental health and living in this world that is just not conducive to overall well-being. And on our journey of healing, there's going to be highs and lows. And I think that it's important that we normalize that and we stop idolizing and looking towards, especially even celebrities, for, you know, like our ideals. Mm -hmm. I see it like obviously everyone knows what's going on with Britney Spears right now, but even just like the Britney Murphy stuff, I was watching her documentary Mm -hmm. on HBO Max and it's like every single person, even a celebrity who has this picture perfect life from the outside is going to be impacted because if you have the ability to be like activated, your stress arousal, your sympathetic nervous system, you have the opportunity to live with mental health. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about StoryWorth. This holiday season, I wanted to give the gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship that we share. That's why I'm giving everyone I care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relatives or friends a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions that you've never thought to ask, like, what's the bravest thing you've done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved one's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you will be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Reading the weekly stories helps connect you with your loved ones, no matter how near or far apart you are. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful and personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com reality and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com reality to save $10 on your first purchase. If you're a fan of romantic movies and love films with beautiful cinematography, then you're going to love Redeeming Love in theaters January 2021. Based on the international best-selling novel by Francine Rivers, the movie takes place during the California gold rush of 1850 and follows the life of Angel, who is the most notoriously sought-after woman in the Sierra Nevada foothills in a town called Paradise. Right as she was about to give up on finding freedom, Angel meets Michael and encounters a love that's unlike anything she's ever experienced. But the shame of her past causes Angel to run away from the very thing that she's always wanted. As Michael sets out to find her, Angel discovers that there is no brokenness that love can't heal. Redeeming Love featuring Abigail Cohen, Nina Dobrev, Eric Dane, and Fumka Jansen is rated PG-13 and premieres January 21st in theaters nationwide. So bring a friend or even your significant other over to see Redeeming Love. For more information or to find tickets to a theater near you, visit redeeminglovemovie.com. That's redeeminglovemovie.com. In a study by Esquire, 54% of women said they'd rather be hit by a car than considered fat. 
If I'm being honest, I've been those women. So for me, this isn't just a podcast, it's personal. I'm Danielle Robey, TV host and journalist, and years of celebrity interviewing taught me that beauty isn't about what you look like, it's about who you become. Each week, I'm having thought-provoking conversations, digging into the stories of people who put a new spin on pretty. From entrepreneurs and authors to politicians and celebrities, no topic is off limits. So join me every Thursday for a new episode to feel pretty inspired, pretty seen, and best of all, pretty smart. Can you share with us more about the nervous system and how it impacts our mental health? Yeah. So I always, I don't know if you ever watched the Jetsons and the Flintstones growing up, but that's kind of how I look at it is like our amygdala, that is what is our survival brain. It's what perceives danger out there. It's constantly on the watch for danger. And if it perceives that you are in danger, it's going to activate your sympathetic nervous system. It's going to activate your fight or flight. And the problem is, is your amygdala was designed for like the Flintstone days, like when your ancestors and the cavemen and they had to like run from saber-toothed tigers. That is what your amygdala is used to activating for. But now we live in a Jetsons world where you don't have to run from saber-toothed tigers. We have stressors like bills and traffic and bosses. And can I take care of my kids and have dinner done on time while still maintaining a job? Our stressors look so different, but our nervous system is still responding to them as if they're life-threatening. So that's pretty much in a nutshell, like a quick version of where we are with the nervous system and how it activates your fight, flight, freeze, which activates anxiety and can lead to stress arousal and dysregulation in the mind-body system. And enough dysregulation and enough stress leads to that cup flowing over and getting to that point where you just say, I can't do this anymore. It's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I can't live in this world and operate like this anymore. And I think that in my bouts of suicidal depression, that's really where it's been. It's like, I'm so overwhelmed by being a human (laughs) with such little support that I don't want to be here anymore. And you get to this threshold where eventually that turns into thoughts of ending your life, which can be really intrusive and Mm -hmm. chronic. And pulling yourself out of that is by far, I mean, it's harder than unmedicated childbirth, which I've been through twice, you know? So I I mean, that's literally the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is pull myself out of those bouts of suicidal depression. So we know that mental health issues are so rampant in America. I would say that the vast majority of people, whether they've been diagnosed or not, deal with mental health issues, whether that's depression or anxiety. I think that something that you say on social media, though, is really interesting. You say that it's important not to identify as your diagnosis. And I really love that because in the bouts of my depression, it's really been helpful for me to say to myself, even though I'm depressed right now, I am not depression. I am not suicidal. I am a mother. I am a a human being. I am a spiritual being. I am all of these things like that self-talk has been imperative 
to me making it through those tough moments. So even though you're dealing with something, you don't necessarily have to identify as it. But I want to know more about your thought process in that. I think the reason I strongly dislike the DSM and diagnoses is because I have heard so many people say, I am bipolar. and, And when they say it, or like, I am schizophrenic, or I am depressed, when they say it, They say it as if they cannot heal from it. They say it as if it is who they are and they're going to live with it the rest of their lives. And that's where I get so frustrated is because at the end of the day, the diagnosis, the DSM, isn't based on like scientific research. We're not studying your brain or doing levels of serotonin in your brain. It is a group of professionals who sat down at a table and said, hey, let's put these symptoms together and give it a label. But what I don't like is that people are identifying so much with that label that it's taking away their agency to heal. And it's also making it so that like literally every single one of us could have a diagnosis because I'm pretty sure we all could like fall under anxiety disorders, whatever that looks like for you. But if I could just say anything, it's like, you are not your diagnosis. Your diagnosis is a label. That's not to minimize your symptoms, but It is just a label at the end of the day. There have been times where you could look at a DSM and diagnose me as being manic or bipolar, but I'm not actually manic or bipolar. And one of the hardest things, my husband and I own a drug and alcohol treatment center, is when we have a client that comes in and they have been on a meth bender for four months, it's really easy to diagnose them as being bipolar or manic or borderline or any of those things based off of what they tell you in those initial intake interviews. And What I've seen time and time again is that with or without the use of medication, these clients usually stabilize over the next four or five months. And then when they do stabilize, those diagnoses change. But for the rest of their lives, they might think, hey, I'm bipolar. Hey, I'm borderline. And the reality is that they're not. And what's so interesting is I say with the use of medication or not, because sometimes people absolutely need to be medicated. Usually in that first six weeks, they need some sort of support. And then there's people who don't necessarily need medication and they still heal. And under what conditions are they healing? Well, basically out of the fast paced, crazy world that we're living in. They come into treatment with us and they are isolated. They are taking care of their mental health. They are eating well. They are regulating their sleep. They are finding community. They are finding love for themselves and other people. They are healing. And as a result, their mental health gets substantially better. And then what happens is they go back into the Western world and we give them as many coping skills as possible, but they're going back into this fast paced, dysregulated system. And then their mental health goes back down. And then unfortunately they end up a lot of the times using substances again to cope. And that's what's so hard. I love that you said about people on substances because I worked in the prison system. I saw this all the time, but even with kiddos, like, you can't diagnose substance use. Like I get it. They're going to present a certain way, but they're presenting that way because of the drugs that they're on. 
once that medication's out of their system, it stabilizes and they balance and they don't present that way anymore. But yet you have just labeled them with a diagnosis that could impact them in the future. So I loved that you said that. I think we, we've created this kind of rigid system in order to fit into the systems in place. What do I mean by that? We created a DSM and we created the diagnoses in order to fit into this capitalistic system that we need these diagnoses in order to get coverage for care, right? Yeah. And so it's almost like this double-edged sword where, and you understand this as a therapist, right? You have to code for X, Y, and Z in order for an insurance company to cover that person's treatment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that person has it to that degree. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's like we created the system to help people, but it's actually not helping people at all. Mm -hmm. And that's why I get so frustrated because I get a lot of pushback from people that say, oh, you're perpetuating the stigma and that I'm not helping. But the reality is, is, I am 100% validating your symptoms. I am saying that mental health struggles are real. What I am saying is don't fall victim to the mental health model that we currently have because it's not designed to help you. Like, I I hate to say that, but the labeling is purely for insurance purposes. You having a diagnosis tells me nothing about what you're struggling with because you could come to me and I give you a diagnosis And then you go to another person and they may give you a totally different diagnosis because it is completely subjective. I'm not doing x-rays. I'm not doing blood work. I am looking at you and being like, oh, you look like you're presenting this way. That must be what you're struggling with. I diagnosis and off it goes. So how does that negatively impact people who are suicidally depressed? I can't. With 100% certainty say how, I think for me, what I've seen is, like I said, I worked in the prison, so I have seen mental health in ways a lot of people haven't seen. And these people come in with just a laundry list of diagnoses that they've gained since they were kids. And I think it, like I go back to it, takes away their agency. They think something is wrong with me. And if somebody in the community has that belief, like I'm broken. This is who I am. I'm never going to get better. They may start to feel hopeless. They may start to feel like they're a burden to their family and friends. And that's when they just may want to end it all because they don't see any hope in sight. Yeah. You posted on your social media that we, we medicate childhood adversity and treat it like mental illness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, (sighs) I get really feisty over this one because Right now I'm working in an inpatient psych hospital with adolescents. And so I am seeing kiddos be given medications for all these different ACE, like ACEs, adverse childhood effects. And instead of saying like, hey, I can see that you're starting to escalate a little bit. Like let's utilize your coping skills. They're pushing PRNs. Here, take this medication. And I get so frustrated because One, you're teaching them to use substances to self-regulate or to cope. And two, they're not struggling with a chemical imbalance. They're struggling with neglect, abuse, abandonment, trauma, physical sexual abuse, just different things. And I get so 
frustrated because when we do that, we're setting these kids up for failure. And not to mention, not every mental health medication that kids are given are FDA approved. I just learned that recently and like my mind is blown. Wow. Yeah. Working in the field of adolescence, I can't even imagine. I want to say that like I am not anti-medication. I'm actually pro-MAT, like through and through. Like I think that medication-assisted treatment is it can be an excellent thing and it can save a lot of lives. I'm not anti-SSRIs at all. I just think that when we're looking at the mental health crisis in America, we're throwing Band-Aids on a gaping wound that yeah. is not going to be fixed through medication. Mm-hmm. I think that the system is so broken on different levels. One, the system to getting support and help is broken. And two, just living in this world the way that it is, is not sustainable. And I feel like I say that on every episode because (laughs) it's true. I really do feel like the world is on fire and no one's doing anything about it. It's like I was driving down the 405 freeway. It was bumper to bumper traffic. And I had this moment where I was thinking, how many people on this freeway are depressed right now and have considered suicide in the last six months. And then I was like, probably the vast majority of them, you know, just doing this daily grind is just so not sustainable. So let's get into solution because I think Mm -hmm. that that's really important when we're talking about these issues. I think a lot of people can feel hopeless and like there's no way out. So as a therapist, say someone comes to see you and they're not necessarily at the point where they have a plan, but they are very depressed. What are the Mm -hmm. first steps that you're going to encourage them to take to begin the process of getting help and healing? So for me, if they come to me with suicidal thoughts, and I just want to do like a disclaimer, it's normal to have thoughts of not wanting to be here anymore. I think people panic. Like if somebody comes to them and they're like, you know, I'm having these thoughts, we like freak out. But it is normal to have passive, like passing thoughts of like, man, life is really hard right now. I don't know what to do. I had them in grad school. There was days I didn't want to wake up in grad school. Was I suicidal? No, but I was like, man, life feels really hard right now. I don't want to do this anymore. And so I just wanted to throw that out there that it's okay to have the thought. It's when you have a plan, a method, and an intention, that's when it kind of gets a little like, okay, somebody needs to step in. So I would first just do like, okay, let's get a safety plan. Who can you contact if you're starting to have these thoughts and you want to go through with them? Give them like local agencies number, the law enforcement, things like that. I am not anti-medications. I think medication should be the last resort because meds were never designed for long-term use. They were only studied for six to eight weeks. Yep. And what's happening is people are getting put on medications without ever being informed And then they're having all these side effects in the future. And so if somebody is in front of me, and this is where I tread lightly because I don't want somebody not to get on meds because they're suicidal. Like, I I don't even know if I'm articulating this correctly, but if someone's suicidal, if they feel medications is what they need, by all means, go get on meds. 
but know that you have to do the work. You have to heal and you can't be on the meds forever because they will essentially become a band-aid if you're not trying to figure out what's at the root of these suicidal thoughts. So if you need to get on meds, go see a provider to get on meds. I would encourage you to go through a psychiatrist. GPs have very little training in mental health medications or mental health in general. And then I would just try to explore like, what is going on? Like, what is driving these thoughts? What does your sleep, diet, lifestyle look like? If I feel that they are not safe to leave my office or leave where I am at, I would call law enforcement. I would get them either into the hospital to try to get them stable. But that makes me nervous too, because sometimes when you put them in a hospital for mental health reasons, that just opens the floodgates of here's meds and it takes them on a bad path. So that's kind of where I would start. I don't know if I answered the question, but... No, you absolutely did. And you emphasized the part of getting to the underlying. Well, first, you emphasized the part about normalizing those thoughts. I literally was in the kitchen with my husband. I have a daughter who my life is very stressful. (laughs) And I always preface saying this because it can be really triggering for some people that like suffering it happens to everybody on various degrees. I'm very aware of like my privilege, Um, but I'm someone who suffered a lot in their early childhood years up until the age of 19 and then has since getting sober experienced different forms of suffering and challenges. And I am a mom of a special needs kid and, you know, running businesses. And I've just been having like a really a tough time recently. And I said to my husband, like, I don't know how I'm going to do another 20 years of this. Like, I don't know how I'm going to actually even do another 10 years of this. And that doesn't mean that I'm like suicidal, but it is that feeling of like, I don't necessarily want to be here doing this human thing anymore. Like I have Mm -hmm. that frequently. And I think that I used to spin out over that because I'd be like, oh God, that's not good. And then I would go down this rabbit hole of like, I'm suicidal, I'm depressed. And as I start telling myself that, I'm then looking for areas of my life that validate what I'm saying. And I'm not looking at any of the good stuff in my life. I'm so heavily focused on the depression and the anxiety and the overwhelm that I can't see the good parts. My husband, you know, we believe in multiple lifetimes and consciousness and all that stuff. And so my husband goes, well, then babe, you just come back again. And then you have like different types of suffering. (laughs) You know, he was like, you know, it's just, you're never going to like really escape this. Like you might come back in like two years and you could be living, you know, somewhere else experiencing various degrees of suffering that are even worse than the suffering that you're experiencing right now. So, you know, we had like a nice little funny conversation about it, but I just think, yeah, like normalizing that is the first part that is really important. And then the second part you said about um, unpacking that is also really important. So in the beginning of unpacking that with a therapist, which can be really scary. A lot of people can be anti-therapy or, and I think we're so programmed to, to believe that like, and this is what capitalism and living in a patriarchy does to us is it makes us feel like we're invincible, but we're very much so like not invincible. And so a lot of people don't even ask for help, don't even know where to go for help and just think that they can handle it all. So what are those first 
steps or those first things that you're encouraging people who are severely depressed to do to start bettering their daily experience? So the first thing is depending on where you fall in the depression is if you, all you can do is get out of bed and take a shower and that's all you can muster. I would say, get out of bed and go take a shower. And then when you feel like you can get to a place where you can go for a walk, go outside and get sunshine and ground yourself in nature. And as you build momentum, you'll start to feel good. Obviously, you want to identify what are the good things going on in my life right now? Because when we're struggling, it is so easy to become hyper-focused on the negative. But what's going right? Are you sleeping? If you're depressed, you may be sleeping too much. But when you start to like have an improvement in your depression have good sleep quality. What's your sleep hygiene look like? Are you connecting with other people? We're social creatures or are you isolating more? What does your diet look like? We don't realize that, but like diet plays such a huge role in just the microbiome and the gut brain connection. And you can have struggles like that. And I hate to say this, but, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not anti-medication, but some people feel more depressed on certain medications. So it might be a medication thing for you. And I know that for some people, there are people who struggle with suicidal thoughts on medications. And so I think it's kind of getting curious, like what is driving this for me? Like, where is this coming from? Because you don't just wake up one day and you're depressed. It is a slow process. So go backwards and unpack it and say, Where's the root? Where's this coming from? I've never been more depressed than being on Prozac. I That's when I called my husband from my bathroom floor. I was five weeks pregnant and I had an 18-month-old sleeping in the next room. And I called my husband and I said, you need to 5150 me because I'm going to kill myself. And that was the scariest moment of my life. I've never been so depressed than when I was on Prozac. And I felt like no one was helping me. Like my psychiatrist was like, well, let's just try this med or get off this med. And my brain chemistry was just like, whoa, I can't freaking deal with this. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. until I actually went to a MD who was also a homeopathic doctor who ran the blood work, figured out that I had hormonal issues, figured out that I had um, genetic mutations like MTHFR and I wasn't getting enough B vitamins, looked at all my vitamin deficiencies, encouraged me to go to therapy, like started, you know, telling me, go to the beach, get your feet in the sand, doing all these things that pulled me out of it that mm-hmm. I made it through. It wasn't until then that I really like got better. And so it took more than what like an average person is going to have access to, which is really unfortunate to pull me out of, of that situation. I'd like to talk about the courage that it takes to heal after a suicide attempt. I think after the attempt, there's so many feelings of, shame that can be just absolutely crippling. Um, Obviously the depression piece is still there. The feeling like a failure aspect is probably very real. I know for me in those low, low moments, I felt that feelings of being selfish come up. What are your thoughts on healing after an attempt? I think you have to really be grounded in who you are. I've heard stories of people that the attempt changed their life. Like it it almost like snapped them out of it and they were better. And then there's some people that are 
upset that it didn't work. And they kind of just go next level deeper into it. And so I would just go back to the same thing of like, you've got to find your reasons for living. I don't care if it's having pizza for dinner. You know, it doesn't have to be this grand thing, but you have to find those reasons for living and you have to just get up and move your body, even if that's not what you want to do. And social support is so important. I think for a lot of people, depression and suicide comes from feelings of like, I'm a burden. I'm being a burden to my family. And so even if family members can hear this right now, if you know somebody who's struggling with suicide, really show them like, or with your words or validation, like that they're not a burden to you because that's truly how they feel in that moment. They feel that you would be better off if they were dead. So I think it's still the same process of how can we pick you back up? How can we keep going forward and just getting you healing? Mm. Yeah, I think that the family piece is really important. I touched on that in last week's episode with my husband. I asked him in the Q&A, like, how has it been being my partner? His mom committed suicide when he was 14. And she had a very challenging journey. And I mean, that was back in the 80s with medication and diagnoses and being in and out of the mental hospital. She was schizophrenic. And what she really needed was like support. You know, the average schizophrenic episode, I believe at max lasts for six weeks, which is why most of those medications are only tested for six weeks because they're supposed to be to get people through those manic intense episodes and then to taper them off of them. And, you know, she really struggled. And then, you know, for my husband, seeing me go through those episodes, I'm sure it hasn't been easy, but he said, you know, that he really believes that what his mom needed and what I needed was just, yeah, that love, that empathy, that feeling of like, you're not alone in this. You're not alone mm-hmm. in your loneliness. Like your loneliness is valid. It's, you know, it's there and it, and you're feeling it and it feels overwhelming, but you're not actually alone. I'm here for you. Just hearing those words helped me feel safe when I didn't feel safe in my own mind and in my own head. And I think that a lot of people can probably relate to that feeling of of not being safe with themselves. And that's like the scariest feeling ever is not feeling safe with yourself. Yeah, I want to touch on something because I think a what I haven't mentioned yet is a lot of people may want to attempt suicide because they feel like the symptoms are never going to end. It's never going to get better. And it's a huge reason I really focus on trauma. And people may be like, well, I've never experienced trauma. Trauma is stress when your survival brain perceives you to be powerless, helpless, or lacking control. That's what trauma is. It's just stress with those three factors to it. And so you may go through something traumatic. And like, I always imagine like you have a cup. We all have different cup sizes based on what we went through as children, what our parents went through that, you know, through uh, intergenerational trauma. And when these things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, whatever it looks like for your trauma gets put into your cup. If you are not recovering after that traumatic experience, your cup is going to get fuller and fuller until it overflows. And then you have the symptoms. And so for somebody who is struggling with suicidal thoughts, I would want to help regulate their nervous system. I would want to help try to empty that cup a little bit for them because that's where the healing takes place. 
People don't associate past traumas from their childhood as their current symptoms, but the reality is is it has everything to do with it. Mm. I love that. And as someone who also works in the, you know, spiritual plane as well, one of the things that I realized when healing, actually doing EMDR with my therapist, Mm -hmm. healing from my early childhood sexual abuse is that time is absolutely not linear. That four-year-old who is being sexually abused very much so lives in this 30-year-old's body. Like those two things are existing at the same time. And so we can heal all of those things by calling those memories forward and processing them with someone safe, right, for us. And it's important to do that because those aspects of of our traumas, whether they're big T traumas or little T traumas, exist and they're still playing out in our daily lives with the way that we feel about our our place in the world and who we are and the way that the world works, right? Like how we view our external reality and who we are is very much so impacted by our past trauma. I love that you touched on the fact that it is temporary because it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been through four episodes of suicidal depression in the last 10 years of my sobriety. And while they lasted for months and it was some of the most challenging months of my existence for sure, they eventually did pass. And I can't say that it was one thing or another that that made that happen, but they did pass. And I'm so grateful that I'm here today and that I'm able to have conversations around this because I just want people to know that like you're not alone and this is not forever. Mm -hmm. And it's also important like we're talking a lot about what can you do after the fact but like I think anybody listening to this can be preventative with their mental health because we tend to wait until a symptom presents and then we run to get on meds because that's what society tells us we should do and it's so important to be preventative, to avoid even getting to that place. So you may not be struggling with symptoms right now. And let's say you've experienced chronic stress or trauma in the past. You can start re-regulating your nervous system. You can start grounding in the moment. You can start belly breathing. You can still do like progressive muscle relaxation. You can go to therapy, just process it. I think it's cool to go to talk to somebody that's non-biased and you can say whatever you want to say. We need to get to a place where we're being preventative with our mental health because like I said, nobody's immune to it. So it's no different than like cancer. Like why can't we try to take steps to minimize the likelihood of us getting it? Obviously, it's not saying you won't get it instead of getting it. And then it's like trying to put out a massive fire. So I think it's really important to also be reactive to the situation. Like what can I do in the moment to heal it, but also being preventative. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think that the challenge is that it puts all of the onus on the individual. And we keep doing that. We keep thinking like, oh, well, everyone's responsible for their own stuff. But I really think as a society, like we are responsible at this point for reshaping the world that we want to live in, especially as a mother. Like I really feel that like I want to create a world that is conducive to positive mental health outcomes, to positive health outcomes, to a better, more equitable 
more caring and kind world. And so absolutely, it is our responsibility to do that. And it's also our responsibility to start caring for others, for each other, and for having each other's back. And I will say that in those moments of really deep depression, one of the things that really did pull me out was being of service to other people always. And sometimes it felt like, oh my God, I have nothing to give. But just small little acts and making somebody else's day better has helped me immensely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Where can my listeners follow along with you and learn more about your journey and your process and your thoughts? Yeah, it was such a pleasure being on with you today. You can find me on Instagram at Courageously You. It's just Courageously period you. You can also find me on the Courageously You podcast. That's a platform where I invite my mentors and the people that I look up to in the psych field. And they're just kind of helping you bring free information to mental health. So those are pretty much the two biggest places I'm at right now. Thank you so much for joining me. This week's affirmation is, I trust the process of life. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, follow along with us, leave a review. It means so much to me. There are new episodes of Recovering From Reality every Monday, and you can follow me on social at Recovering From Reality or visit my website, recoveringfromreality.com. 